stand for the uh, scripture reading for today. It's in Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have hold, and birds have of the air have nests, but the Son of Man is nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let us first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. You may be seated. Well, good morning once again. It truly is good to be among the people of God again. I know it's only been one week since we have gathered in this place, and many of us have set aside time throughout the week to be with each other. Yet in, increasing, in an increasingly perverse world, I think that we will find and experience an increasingly increasing weariness when we are away from and an increasing joy when we are among the people of God. So I say it again, it is good to be among God's people. May God grant us comfort, encouragement, strength, and peace as we gather to worship his name and to fellowship one, and among, one another together today. But before we get to our text this morning, I want to ask you to consider a question. Of all the excuses that keep us from doing what we know we ought to be doing, what are the most dangerous? Those that are grand and extravagant or those that are plain and simple? Well, let me put it this way. As religious people, are we most in danger of being held back from faithful obedience by those things that carry an element of genuine wisdom or by those things that must first convince us to accept a competing narrative or worldview? Are we more in danger from those things that are almost true or from those things that are outright lies? This morning we are going to consider some reasons why people don't follow Jesus, why they don't actually follow and obey him, even when they may be generally convinced of his message. So what is it that keeps somebody from truly accepting the gospel call of Christ and following in obedience? 
Well, I think that at least for religious people, we will see the greatest danger of failing to follow and obey does not come from the extravagant lies of the enemy, but from those things that sound both reasonable and obvious. Those things that carry with them an element of truth. So as we continue, I ask that you would consider what excuses do you or those people you care about use to hold them back from obedience to the gospel call of Christ? Or that you use to hold you back from walking in greater obedience to what you know he would call you to, obedience to the radical life that the gospel truly does draw us to. Perhaps we may have the opportunity as we continue to reevaluate some of those reasons that we haven't just let go and stepped out in faith. We might find some of those areas in our lives where we have felt called to action yet have allowed one thing or another in our lives to hold us back. That in mind, I ask that you would join me in prayer as we get ready to approach the word of God once again. Father, we confess how fragile our minds are, how fragile our attention spans are, how easily we are deceived how easily are we led astray, how easily we believe almost truths and flat-out lies. We need your Spirit, Father. We need your Spirit to give us wisdom, to give us clarity, to help us discern what is right from what is wrong. So, Father, I pray that you would give us clarity of vision, and give us a solid determination to step out in obedience to where you lead us. Father, break those bounds that hold us back. Free us from those excuses for why we just simply cannot Live as you have called us to live. May the gospel message be clear. May you draw people to your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin our text this morning, we find Jesus once again seeking to escape the crowds that surrounded him any time he remained in a single place for very much time. Anytime that he, he went from place to place and when he would stay somewhere proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven and healing, performing miracles of healing and exorcisms, crowds surrounded him. We see here that he wanted to escape the crowd, similar to what we saw at the beginning of chapter 5, as Jesus wanted to retreat with his disciples into the hill country to teach them. Even though we know by the end of that Sermon on the Mount, he was once again surrounded by crowds. We will see a similar thing again in Matthew 14, 13, after Jesus heard of the death of John the Baptist and he desired to escape, to get away from the pressure of the crowds around him. 
So we read in verse 18, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Well, if we take into account where they arrive once they get to the other side, in verse 28, they crossed from the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee all the way down opposite to the southeast corner, the shore of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Their travel would have taken them about as far away from the crowds as they were surrounded by in Galilee as they could get in that body of water. They arrived in a much less Jewish-dominated area, as we will see attested by the fact that they were confronted by large herds of swine. If you see a bunch of pigs in any biblical narrative, you can be sure that that is a place where the Jewish influence is somewhat less than other areas. Well, no reason for this journey is given in the text. Jesus doesn't tell us why he wanted to, 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 to leave that area other than the fact that the crowds were pressing in on him and he wanted to move on. So he gave orders to go. Well, no matter how often we try to remind ourselves of it, it is hard for us to picture the kind of pressure that Jesus would have experienced just about everywhere that he went. There really isn't anything in our modern cultural context to which we can compare it. He wasn't simply chased by a handful of photographers. It wasn't just the hassle of some paparazzi just trying to get some pictures of him in some candid moments. He wasn't just chased by adoring fans hoping to get an autograph or interrupting him during a meal seeking to have a short conversation or, or take a selfie with him. What he experienced was far more intrusive than just random people interrupting his daily life. Where Jesus went, he was surrounded by crowds of people. And if he had stayed somewhere for any amount of time, those crowds quickly became thousands and thousands of people pressing in around him. He wasn't just some cultural curiosity. He wasn't just some very influential or, or famous, wealthy man that people just hoped if they were close to him, they might somehow benefit from his presence. He was a man who worked miracles. And he was a man who spoke with authority that nobody had ever witnessed before. And he spoke with that authority about the things that mattered most in the people's lives. Jesus was miracle worker. He was healer. He was prophet. He was teacher. He was revolutionary. He was radical. He was a, a controversial icon. He was all of these things wrapped up into one person. Even though his true friends were few, his earthly ministry was massively popular as attested by the thousands and thousands of people who would follow him everywhere he went. He couldn't go anywhere without attracting crowds of people all looking to get something from him. Well, being more or less an introvert myself, I can't imagine just how suffocating that would have felt even for somebody who thrived in large groups. So many people pursuing him. 
So many people just hungry and begging for what he had to give. And yet at the same time, so few who truly understood him, so few who loved him, so few who actually wanted to follow and obey. So I think we can all understand why even though Jesus often cared for, often ministered to and served these large crowds around him, that he felt compassion for them, we can understand why he regularly sought time to escape from the crowds with his disciples. Or even more than that sometimes where he sought to escape even his disciples' presence to be alone and commune with his father in prayer. Yes, he had compassion for the masses, yet his primary ministry was to those whom he called, to those who remained with him throughout his travels, to that close group of disciples, those men who would ultimately die for him, those men whom he would use to build his kingdom. Well, if you think about it, there is probably nothing more essential to discipleship than time and proximity. You cannot be somebody's disciple unless you are close to them, unless you actually spend time with them. You are not being discipled by dead men who have written books. You are not being discipled by celebrity pastors across the country or around the world. You can learn from them, sure. They have wisdom for us. But you will not be discipled by them. Discipleship takes time and proximity. It is how the master can observe his students and evaluate what is needed in them, what is needed to mold them into the kind of men that they need to be. It is also how the disciple can observe and learn from their master. It's how they learn to, to really understand how their master thinks, how he retalks, how he talks, how he faces challenges. You can't learn those things from somebody always being in the polished moment. You can't learn those things from only being around somebody if they're behind a pulpit, speaking practiced and thought out words. You learn those things by being around somebody as they face new and different challenges. And you see how they respond. You see them in the face of challenge and struggle. It's there where you learn what motivates them how they prioritize things in their lives and what they really desire out of other people. So of course, this process of discipleship would naturally take proximity and time. How else is a servant going to be made like his master? Yes, disciples become like their masters. That's what we were told in scripture that when a disciple has been fully trained, he will be like his master. That is true not just in a biblical sense and in, in the proper Christian understanding. That is true in general. If you are around somebody to learn from them, to try to emulate them, you will ultimately become like them. Disciples of great and influential masters 
could hope, especially if you go back to this time in history when this was a common official relationship, disciples of well-known, influential masters could hope that they would become also well-known and influential. There was certainly much to be gained by being closely associated with someone who garnered such energetic crowds everywhere he went. So perhaps that is why in our text this morning, we will see two would-be disciples seeking to be numbered among Christ's close companions. At this point in Matthew's gospel, we do not yet have that, that more solidified separation of the 12 disciples with Jesus. There is already a sense of a core group that has been traveling with him, some of those that have been close to him, but it is not yet that finalized group, that number, the 12. We won't see Matthew's calling until we get to chapter 9. And we won't actually see the whole 12 listed until we get to chapter 10. Even so, as I said, there, there is an understanding among the people that have been around that there are certain men that have been close companions that did go out with Jesus that were numbered among his close followers. And others would seek to join their ranks, though not necessarily for the right reasons. Well, this first hopeful disciple that we come in contact with in this passage is a scribe. Read in verse 19, And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Well, I don't know about you, but I think it's a little bit surprising, based on everything we have read about scribes to this point in Matthew's gospel, that there is a scribe this close to Jesus who is asking and boldly making promises about how he will follow Jesus wherever he goes. Everything before has been wholly negative in relationship to, to the scribes. Along with the Pharisees, they have served as examples, the epitome of the dead religion that has taken hold of the nation of Israel. They were hypocrites. They were the examples of what you don't want to do. They were the examples of the ones that if you continue to follow them, you will face destruction. Yet Jesus wasn't inherently against scribes, just as he wasn't inherently against the Pharisees. It wasn't the order to which these men were attached that caused the harsh words that we have seen before. The problem was the self-righteousness that they tended to typify. That was what was at the issue, that they, these men, these scribes and Pharisees, were predominantly marked by their self-righteousness, predominantly marked by their faith in themselves, by their celebration of their own worth and their own works. So this scribe seems to have heard or, or been made aware that Jesus was about to leave this area and he wanted to be one of those who went with him. Well, at first glance, there's nothing about this request that would make us think anything other than this man is genuine. Praise God, he wants to be with Jesus. We must look a little harder to piece together this man's real intentions. And ultimately, it is Jesus' response that gives us the clearest indication of what was going on in the heart of this man. 
This man came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. What's well, a little bit interesting that this man comes up to Jesus and calls him teacher. In Matthew's gospel, that designation for Jesus was only ever used by those who were outsiders, not for those who were among Jesus' close companions. The one exception to that being that Judas Iscariot did call Jesus teacher. Though I'm sure we would all agree that his inclusion on that list only serves to make a case for what Matthew may be indicating as the scribe comes up to him and calls him teacher. Though the scribe made a bold promise to follow Jesus wherever he went, he comes across different than those who were close to Christ. When we see how Jesus' disciples relate to him, how those who understood who he was, who truly were faithful to him, they would call him master or Lord, but not teacher. Sure, that designation of teacher carried a measure of respect, yet it was a generic term that could very easily be applied to many. Matthew's inclusion of that detail is likely a clue to the man's understanding of Christ and what his intentions were on wanting to follow him. Well, there have been some that have pointed out that this man's bold claim of willingness to follow seems to have been a sudden and rash promise. As though the man saw an opportunity or that he got caught up in the excitement that all this, these big things were happening around Jesus and he just wanted to jump in and be a part of it too. He may have seen the following that Jesus routinely garnered around him and saw an opportunity to be associated with him. As I mentioned before, if you were a close disciple of a famous and influential teacher, you had very good chance of becoming famous and influential yourself. As though the man might want to invest early and benefit as much as possible from Jesus' popularity and influence over time. That if he was one of these early followers of Christ, he would be in a position to reap maximum benefits as Jesus' popularity grew. Some have been quick to remember the kind of lifestyle that a scribe would have been accustomed to. Scribes were important men. They were educated men. They would have been used to a soft and easy life. They would have been used to being treated with respect and honor. Jesus' response to the scribe seems to indicate that he didn't believe this man was prepared to face what he must come against if he were to actually follow with Jesus. He wasn't prepared for the hardships that Jesus' disciples were going to face. Jesus' service, unlike that he was the, what the man was used to as a scribe, his service was not one that promised worldly gain was not one that promised ease. To follow Christ meant that you were accepting the promise of pain and persecution. Consider the rashness of the promise of this scribe against the call of Christ in Luke 14. So if you turn with me just a couple of books forward to Luke 14, we'll start in verse 25. 
Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes way off or come against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Bold promises are of no use if they are made in in ignorance. What good is a man's word if he is incapable of delivering on his word? How much stock do you put in anybody's promises when you know that they don't understand what they are talking about? Those promises ring hollow and empty. Jesus' response to the scribe brings a lot of clarity about this man's intentions, about what he was thinking as he made this bold promise to follow Jesus. Jesus understood the hearts of men. We see that time and again throughout the Gospels. He was able to look in and see the heart, the intentions of men. He could see beyond the facade that men like to project in front of others, and he could see who they truly were underneath. There is no hiding from Christ. So he responded to the scribe in verse 20. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You can imagine that response must have been as a splash of ice water to the excitement of the scribe. He had been excited at the prospect of traveling with Jesus, of being near to Jesus. Of course, it is easy to get excited about something that is new. It is easy to get yourself excited about something that's a a new challenge, a new adventure, or a new opportunity. Especially when we are only thinking about what we can get from it and not what it will cost us. Well, Matthew gives us no indication that this man actually ever followed Jesus. In fact, the response that Jesus gives to this man, to his rash promise that he will go with him wherever he goes, indicates that Jesus knew just what to say to turn away his excitement. That Jesus knew just what to say to get this man to stop and to not try to follow. His request to follow was rejected by Jesus letting the man see just what he would be getting himself into 
if he did follow Jesus. He was turned away by the promise of adversity. A true disciple of Christ will not be dissuaded from following him just because they are promised hardship. Scripture never shies away from from the promise of hardship to believers. Never shies away from telling us just how much it'll cost, just how difficult it will be to follow Christ. A true disciple will not be dissuaded by the promise of hardship. Even when a true disciple doesn't know the whole picture at the start of their journey, doesn't understand, and, and how can any of us really understand exactly what it will cost to follow Christ? Even then, when they are faced with adversity, or they are warned about what they might lose, they hold their course. Because there is nothing that can be done to them. There is nothing that can be taken away from them that could compare with what they have in Christ. This rash promise of the scribe to follow Jesus wherever he would go was likely centered on just this next journey. Jesus was getting into a boat and likely the scribe was just saying, teacher, I'll come with you wherever you're going. Yet Jesus' response was more to show him what the ministry of Christ would look like, what the disciples of Christ would endure in the long-term following of Jesus. So Jesus told him that he had no place, that the Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And no doubt there were many times, and we read of a number of them throughout the Gospels, when this was exactly the case, where Jesus had no place to lay his head. We know that at times, Jesus did find a measure of comfort, that at times he had, we can read through the Gospels, where Jesus was staying with friends or staying in the house of Peter. Yet those were not the rule, the majority in the life of Jesus. The point here is not that Jesus never experienced any measure of comfort, any measure of stability in his life, but that he often went without. That the disciples of Jesus would often go without. And in the years to come, they would face many hardships. They would face many discomforts. They would face many persecutions much pain and suffering and death because of their loyalty to Christ. That is the reward for them being accounted as one of Jesus' close disciples. So the scribe might have been imagining all the, the acclaim, the celebrity, the status of, of being a disciple of this influential wandering teacher, yet his disciples would know pain and suffering and death because they bore his name. Well, after telling us of Jesus' hard response to the scribe, Matthew continued with his account in verse 21. 
As another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. At first glance, it seems like this man's request was understandable. It was a reasonable request. Before we consider Jesus' response to his delayed promise to follow Jesus, we need to understand what Matthew's use of the word disciple was in his gospel, as well as the real nature of the man's reason for not wanting to follow immediately, the reason for the man wanting to delay his following of Christ. So first, let's look at Matthew's use of the word disciple. Unlike Mark, both Matthew and Luke at times include others, include others outside of the 12 as disciples of Jesus. As we find out who they went, were going to replace Judas with among the 12 in the books of, in Acts 1, we read that there were others who had accompanied them during all the times that the Lord Jesus went in and out among them, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from them. So there were others than just the 12 who were with Jesus, and not just with him at random times, were with him consistently throughout his ministry, consistently throughout his travels, and, and those also were considered disciples, at least in, Math, or in Matthew and Luke's accounts. So there's no reason for us to think that the men that are here in this passage called disciples are actually part of the 12. They would have just been among those who followed Jesus during some portion of his earthly ministry. In fact, I've, I think we have reason to assume that these are not of the 12. So secondly, let's consider the real nature of this man's request to go and bury his father. As I said, taken at face value, this is a very simple, understandable, natural request. Yet I think given a little better understanding of the range of what this request could mean in this cultural context, we will see that just as the scribe was too rash in this, his bold promise that he would follow Jesus wherever he went, this man was going to be far too slow in following Christ. I think ultimately it will be clear that he just wasn't that serious about following. So what did he really mean by saying that he needed to first go and bury his father? Well, first off, we need to be aware of the cultural expectations of how a son would care for his father in first century Israel, especially related to the time of his death. The arrangements of the burial and everything around it, all the logistics of, of, the, of the estate, of the responsibility of the families, of the giving of inheritance, all those things were the responsibility of the eldest son. And I think we can even be generous towards this man and assume that this is an eldest son, knowing that he has real responsibility to his father, real responsibility to his family around the time of his father's death. Culturally, it would be unthinkable for a man not to be there when his father died, to not be there to care for things, to take that responsibility to see to all the necessary logistics. So should we take this to mean 
that if we grant that it would be culturally unthinkable for a man not to be there for his father, does that then mean that this eldest son has a father who is, had just died or was just about to die? If that's what it means that let me first go bury my father, then Jesus' response that we'll get to in just a minute would seem very harsh, would seem very cold. Yet I think we have good reason to understand that little bit, something a little different is actually taking place here. First off, if the man's father had just died or was just about to die, this man would have had no business being along the roadside with Jesus in the first place. So a man that had that kind of care for his cultural and familial responsibilities would not have been out and about with Jesus in the first place if his father was near death or had just died. His position would have been with his father, either caring for a dying man or preparing, preparing everything for his burial. So it doesn't make that sense in that context where a man is that aware of his responsibility and yet he would be out and about with a wandering teacher. Especially when we don't see him going out to meet Jesus to, to plead that Jesus would either heal his father if he was really sick and close to death or to raise his father again if he had in fact just died. So what is more likely? If I don't think that that fits within the context that this man's father had just died or was about to die, what is a more likely scenario? Well, I've come across a couple of different explanations that I think are both linguistically possible and better match the cultural reality of that time. The first possibility is that the man's father isn't near death but is just in the final season of life. So the man was elderly, but, but not sick, showing no signs that he was going to soon die. As such, the man still might think he had reason that it would be good. Culturally, there would still be expectation if you are the eldest son and your father is an older man that you ought to be near, that you must be around to be able to provide for a seamless transition as the patriarchy of the family passes from father to eldest son. Under this understanding, it may even be possible that the son had every reason to believe that his father had many years yet to live, but even so, felt his responsibility was to remain by his side, that the cultural expectation would mean that he would remain close as the eldest son. So in this view, the phrase, go and bury my father, was a cultural idiom representing a dutiful eldest son, his responsibility to remain near his father as long as his father was alive. It was to recognize that he had a cultural and familial responsibility as the eldest son to remain close. The second plausible explanation I read of was of the common practice of second burial. By the time of a person's death, their body would be prepared and placed into a tomb. And after a period of time, after whether it was a year or two, once the majority of the flesh had rotted off of the bones, 
that the remains, the bones, would be collected, placed into a special box and within the wall of the tomb. If you think about the practice where families would have tombs that would be used for many generations, that's a lot of dead bodies that are quickly going to stack upon each other if you don't have a practice like this. So it was a common thing, not too different from what we read about in the Old Testament, where the, the bones of the patriarchs were gathered to be brought and then buried properly in their own land. So in that understanding of go and bury my father, the man might have only wished to delay his following of Jesus until that time passed where he would be able to then collect the remnants of his father, the bones, and be able to go through the ritual burial in the tomb. So in, instead of an indefinite delay, as, as the first possibility would have found, he would have only been requesting a number of months, maybe, maybe a year or two, just long enough for him to observe the normal rites and make sure that everything at home was properly taken care of. Yet in either case, this man was resisting the call of Jesus to follow because there were other things that he wanted to take care of first. We can grant that he wanted to take care of things that were reasonable and they were good things. Yet the troubles of life kept him from following, kept him from going with Jesus. Beloved, we don't have to minimize or trivialize the real life concerns and problems that hold people back from following Christ. We don't have to minimize those to be able to recognize that they are still being used as an excuse to not go out to follow and to obey. Matthew Henry wrote about this passage that an unwilling mind never wants an excuse. An unwilling mind never wants an excuse. He recognized that someone who was looking for an excuse, somebody who wanted a reason not to do what they knew they were supposed to do, would never have a shortage of good, reasonable, necessary-sounding excuses of why they cannot, indeed why they must not, go and follow As we approach Jesus' response to the second man, no matter how we understand the request of the man, no matter how we understand what it meant to go and bury his father, Jesus' response would have seemed radical, if not culturally heretical. Read in verse 22, Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Well, if that comes across as harsh, callous, insensitive, or extreme to us, it is only because we are not rightly remembering the context of Jesus' earthly ministry, the context in history of what was taking place and what was about to come. It only sounds harsh or callous or extreme 
because we have forgotten the urgency of the gospel call. Remember that Jesus walked among, taught, healed, and warned the very generation that would see the wrath of God poured out upon the nation of Israel. He was walking among people, some of whom would be around still when Jerusalem would be, the streets would be filled with blood. Judgment was coming. The axe was at the root of the tree. The strength of Jesus' words was warranted. The extreme nature of the call that he placed on others was necessary and proportional to the colossal shift in the people's present situation. The kingdom of heaven had arrived. God's Messiah was walking among the people. The son of David had come back to sit on the throne. Things had changed, and things were going to change. So it is not radical, it is not harsh, it is not insensitive to warn somebody in any way possible to leave death and destruction behind and instead to choose life. Those times when life and death is truly on the line, it changes things. It changes the equation of how we can actually respond, how we can call out the language we can use, the strength of our words. It changes things. Salvation and damnation, heaven and hell. There could be no higher stakes, no greater urgency behind the message of Christ. It's in that reality that we see the strength of Jesus' words to the man. Well, there is, of course, the question as to what exactly Jesus meant when he said that we can leave the dead to bury their own dead. Well, we've already seen in Matthew's gospel that Jesus doesn't shy away from planting an absurd picture in the minds of his hearers to make a point. Similar when we, we read in the, in the Sermon on the Mount of the man who had a beam in his eye, a structural beam that would be used to hold up the roof of a house, basically a tree sticking out of his eye, and that man was concerned instead with a speck in someone else's eye. It is meant to be an absurd picture. It is physically impossible for that scenario to play out according to the words. It's meant to be absurd to make a point. Jesus doesn't shy away from using absurdity to make a point. Yet I don't think that's what he's doing here in response to this second disciple's desire to delay his following. While there isn't a direct parallel to the use of the language of dead and alive to speak of spiritual realities elsewhere in the Gospels, it is something that is prevalent elsewhere in the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 Paul wrote, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
or Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Or Revelation 3.1, the second half of the verse, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So what do I think that Jesus meant when he said, let the dead bury their own dead? I think he was relaying the spiritual reality of those who would not heed his gospel call and follow. Those who refused the message of Christ, those who refused to be made right with the Father, to repent and turn away from their dead religion and accept the message of the Messiah of God, those who refused were spiritually dead. So they could and they should take care of their own. The time was short, and the spiritually alive had more important things to do. Well, before any objections arise, no, I do not believe this represents a ban on serving or caring for lost people or for taking serious the normal familial and, res and societal responsibilities we may have. This is simply a repudiation that any other responsibility in a person's life can and should be allowed to keep them from following Christ. So what earthly responsibility do you value more than your salvation? That isn't a question as to whether or not you'd be willing to die to try and save the life of someone else. That isn't even a question as whether you might be willing to be damned as Moses and Paul both expressed the willingness to be damned themselves so that their people might be saved. We're not even talking about that. While on earth you might be able to save someone's physical life by sacrificing your own, there is no situation in which you would be able to sacrifice your spiritual life in order to rescue another person from hell. That isn't a real possibility. We do not, we cannot save anyone else. Only God can save a sinner from the wrath he is due. The second disciple placed his earthly responsibilities above in front of the calling of the Savior to follow him. We have no indication that he ever obeyed the command to follow, that he ever left the dead to bury their own. Well-intentioned as they may be, we cannot allow anything else to call us off the course of following Christ. Well, in Matthew's account, we only have, we only read of two disciples or two potential disciples. Yet Luke gives us one more in his account in Luke 9, 61 and 62. There we read, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit 
for the kingdom of God. Of course, similar to the accounts we've already read, this, his desire, his request seems understandable, seems admirable, common sense even. Think about it. How would you respond to somebody who wasn't going to say goodbye and farewell to his family if he was going to take off on a long journey? If somebody was going to get in a boat and cross the sea to the other side, not knowing when they would come back, how would you feel about it? if they didn't let their family know. In this case, the qualification of a man's willingness to follow Jesus was that he was, would first be allowed to tie things up in his life. He might as well have been saying, I will follow, but first let me go and talk over it with my family and friends. Or, I will follow, but first let me go set my affairs in order. Or, I will follow, but first let me make sure that everybody I care about is taken care of. All of those may be and probably are good desires, yet they cannot be reason to delay accepting the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. They cannot be reasons to delay following Christ. In each case, those good things would be used and turned into bad things if they are used as an excuse for not responding in obedience to the gospel call of Christ. If those you love are unwilling to follow Christ, will you follow on your own? If they beg and plead with you not to go down that road... Will you relent? Will they be able to convince you not to follow? And if they try, does it do them any good if you abandon the path and are in, and damned alongside them? Does that do them any good? It might be helpful for us to remember Christian's early plight in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you're familiar with this story, if you're not, you should be, and you should read it. Consider it an assignment to go read Pilgrim's Progress. But if you remember at the beginning of that story, we find Christian carrying this, this massive burden and having read of a message that the city was going to be destroyed. He knew there was danger. And he was, he was burdened over and he was desiring to find a way to escape to salvation. Yet his family, his wife, his children, his friends, nobody believed him. They all thought he was crazy. He was out of his mind. He was responding irrationally. There was no danger his children pleaded for him not to go. His wife told him not to go. His friends tried to bring him back. Everybody around him tried to stop him and no doubt would, would have been reminding him of his familial and societal responsibilities of why he needed to stay right where he was at. Yet he knew he must go, even if he needed to go alone. Because that is how true disciples of Jesus respond 
when he calls them. In your worship guide, I gave you several passages that I want you to go through and read during this week. I want you to see just how consistent the disciples' response was, the true disciples of Christ, just how consistent their response was when Jesus called them. They had different backgrounds, different responsibilities, and yet each and every one of them left everything behind to follow immediately. They were not faithless to previous held responsibilities. We've already seen that Peter still continued to care for his family. He, in fact, moved his family from Bethsaida to Capernaum so that they could be close and he could still care for them even as he went out and followed with Jesus. These men were not faithless to other things that were good and necessary for them to care for. They simply understood the great calling and importance of Jesus' command. Beloved, when the king of kings calls you, you do not delay and you do not seek out better terms. You follow. You obey. Everything in your life must either be brought into conformance with that call or it must be forsaken. Jesus chose his disciples and he commanded them to follow. Unlike the scribe who thought it was within his purview to select his master, that he could go up to Christ and say, I am going to be one of your disciples. No, Jesus called his disciples. Jesus commanded them to follow. He commanded them to obey. That is the gospel call. It is not a powerless plea or an option that is delivered up on a platter. It is a command to submit. It is a command to repent and believe, to follow and obey. That only makes people uncomfortable because they forget just who it is that gives that command. No, his followers do not choose him. They are chosen by the Father before the foundations of the earth. So as we draw near to a close, I want to ask again, what is it that keeps you from stepping out in faith and obedience to the call of Christ? What good and rational sounding excuses have kept you or are keeping you from believing what Christ, that Christ has both the authority to command you and the wisdom to know just how everything is going to play out? That he has the right to command, to demand that you do what he calls you to do and the wisdom to lead you down the path that will be for your good what keeps you from letting go of uncertainty fear and those almost true arguments to actually follow christ in obedience
Beloved, we have no excuse to be ignorant of what is at stake. We cannot afford to either rely on bold promises we have the no ability to keep or to delay in obeying because some distant tomorrow will be better suited for our obedience. So I call on you to consider well the reality in which we live. Judgment is coming. The world around us is on the path to destruction. Not just on the path, they are running, they are sprinting down that path of destruction. Only in obeying the call of Christ can you find life and salvation. Yes, the cost of obedience is high. The life of the disciple is not easy. There will be persecution, there will be trial, there will be sorrow, there will be pain, there will be discomfort. The cost of obedience to Christ is high. Yet the reward is great. The cost of obedience is high, yet not nearly as high as the cost of delaying. That tranquil season of life where all of your competing passions have been fulfilled and you are finally ready to act, that tranquil season of life is not coming. It is a myth. There is not going to be a time when it will be easier or more convenient to step out in faith, to believe and to obey. Today is the day. Christ is calling us to obedience, to follow. So obey and follow. Father, I'm thankful, so very thankful that it is not the strength of my words that cause someone to turn away from sin, someone to turn away from their excuses, to overcome what is holding them back, but it is the power of your spirit. Father, I pray for any of you that are here that have yet never accepted the gospel call of Christ to repent of their sin and to believe and to put their faith in Jesus, that your spirit would work in them now and in the days to come to break them, to give them faith, to give them life. And for those that may be here that have believed yet have still resisted stepping out and truly following in obedience that have allowed the cares of this world to choke them. Father, I pray that you would remind them that it is those who bear fruit, not who start out, that are saved that you would break them of whatever holds them back. Break all of us of whatever holds us back from radical obedience to the call of Christ.
Father, we ask that you would do this for your glory, for the glory of the name of Christ in this land, in this city, in this neighborhood, for your glory and for our good. Pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.